0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcast, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning, we're continuing our consideration of Matthew's gospel, and we find ourselves in chapter 3, considering the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. So we will read together, starting at verse 13 down through verse 17, Matthew three thirteen through 17. This is the word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray, add the blessing to the consideration of your word by your Holy Spirit. May the Spirit bring the word, even as he gave the word. And may it have its intended effect, O Lord God, of running mightily and swiftly among us, of preparing us for you of convictingness of sin, but not in a way, O Lord God, that gives us the sorrow of death, but in a way that gives us strength and encouragement, that we would be lifted up to You, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John the Baptist, as you recall, is living up to his name. He is preaching repentance, and he is baptizing unto repentance in the Jordan River as people confess their sins, as we're told earlier in chapter 3. And now Jesus comes from Galilee for the express purpose of being baptized by John. Our, Our text tells us in verse 13 that is why He has come, to be baptized by John. Now John tries to prevent Jesus, we see in verse 14. He says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? So Something doesn't make sense about this to John. Certainly, a baptism of repentance is not something that Jesus needed, and John seemed to know this. But his comment seems to show more than just a knowledge about Jesus' overall life. It certainly seems to show that, but may also point beyond that to John's... um, um, suspicions or his uh, belief awaiting to be confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, remember that John and Jesus are cousins, born about six months apart from one another. Their mothers are cousins, Mary and Elizabeth. And remember that um, John's mother, Elizabeth, was barren, angel appears to John's father, who is a priest, Zacharias, while he is in the temple ministering unto the Lord and tells him about the birth of his son, John, who is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And then we know that the angel Gabriel goes and appears to Mary and he appears to Joseph in a dream. And he announces both to Mary and Joseph that Mary is going to be with child by the Holy Spirit and that He is the Messiah. The angel also tells Mary that her cousin Elizabeth in her old age is now with child. This will be the forerunner. And we're told that Mary then travels to the hill country of Judah to visit her cousin. Now, when Mary comes into Elizabeth's presence, we're told that John, the baby John, yet to be named at that time, leapt in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus. And Elizabeth, by the Holy Spirit, speaks and says, you know, to what do I owe this? Basically, that the mother of my Lord should come into my presence. And so there is an awareness there by the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth that Mary is the mother of the Messiah. And Mary also, by the Spirit, praises God and prophesies. This is where we have the Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat. And she um, gives this praise and this prophecy that speaks of Jesus as the Messiah. And then we're told that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months. So three months of their pregnancy together were spent together by these two women. And it would seem um, hard to believe that given this beginning, when they first see one another there, that they did not share with one another you know, um, the appearance uh, of the angel to Zacharias, the appearance of the angel to Mary. We also know that when John the Baptist was born, his father by the Holy Spirit also prophesied And he spoke both of the Messiah and of John's role as the forerunner who would prepare a people for the Lord. So all of this is as a backdrop. And I would think that all of this certainly would have been related to uh, John and to Jesus. Um, I can't imagine Elizabeth not telling John when he was old enough to understand about him leaping in the womb. Um, when Mary and Jesus came into His presence. Well, 30 years have gone past now. Both John and Jesus are about 30. We know from Luke's Gospel that Jesus is about 30 when He's baptized, and John is about six months older than uh, Jesus. And 30 was the age when um, priests entered into the priesthood. It was the sons of Aaron alone, of the tribe of Levi, who could be priests to the Lord. And they would enter into that priesthood uh, actively at age 30. So we have John at age 30, um, who is of a priestly line on both sides. His father is a priest, and we're told that his mother is of the sons uh, of Aaron, of the daughters of Aaron, rather. And so he is of ironic priestly line from both sides. But he's not ministering at the temple. He's ministering out in the desert at the Jordan River, conducting a baptism of repentance and a preaching ministry of repentance to prepare a people for the Messiah. And we're told in Luke that when Jesus then comes to be baptized by John, that he also is about 30 years of age. So John is from the hill country of Judah. Jesus is from Galilee, Galilee, which is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And so they didn't grow up right next to one another, but we would have to think that they would have some knowledge of one another over these 30 years, their mothers being cousin. We know that Jesus, when he was a child, that his parents would take the pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the feast because we have that described in Luke. And we would have to think that John, with his father being a priest, would have done some of that as well. So we have to think that there had to be some contact among them um, and some knowledge of one another. Otherwise, there's no basis for John to be trying to prevent Jesus from being baptized. There's something about Jesus and there's something about Jesus' life that causes John to say that he doesn't need to be baptized, but rather, if anything, John needs to be baptized by Him. Now, in the Gospel of John, we are told that God had revealed to John that the Messiah would be revealed to him and to Israel by the fact that when he was baptized, the Spirit would descend like a dove and abide. Upon him. Now, this would seem to be a situation when we try to put all the pieces together. It's a situation not where John is completely in the dark until, surprise, surprise, spirit like a dove comes down and rests on Jesus, and then he knows without any kind of a, a background before that that Jesus is the Messiah. But it would seem to be the case that he would have the indicators going all the way back to the pregnancy of His mother and of Mary, all the way back, also confirmed by the life of Jesus over 30 years. But the final confirmation, the final sign of God, proof positive without doubt, would be the Spirit descending and resting upon Jesus when uh, He is baptized. So here... It would seem that John trying to prevent Jesus is coming from a couple of different angles. First of all, one thing that is clear to John is that Jesus does not need the baptism of repentance that he is um, working at. That's what he is offering. That's what he's doing, preparing a people for the Lord. Um, Jesus does not need that. He does not fit the description of uh, a candidate. And there would also seem here to be some indicator that John is suspicious or perhaps strongly believes but is waiting for the final confirmation that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Because he says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me? That would seem to be a reference to what John has said earlier, that the one coming after Him, the one who is greater than Him, the one whose sandals He's not worthy to carry, is one who is going to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. And it would seem to be an indicator on John's part of an acknowledgement that Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Spirit. And John is acknowledging, I need this baptism from you. You do not need a baptism of repentance from me. But Jesus replies to John and says, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill the prophecies. Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill God's will. And there are another, a number of things going on here. Jesus seems to be acknowledging and agreeing with John that he as an individual, does not need a baptism of repentance. And furthermore, that John does need to be baptized by him. But permit this baptism for now. This baptism by the Spirit is yet to come. He says, permit this baptism to fulfill all righteousness. So how are we to understand that? Again, there seems to be a number of layers that are all going on at the same time. First of all, Jesus needs to be baptized by John in order to identify with His people. Remember last week, we talked about the principle of identification that John preached about in terms of the fruits that show the worth of repentance. Principles of identification with God through Christ. Principles of identification, therefore, with God's people identifying with one another. Well, Jesus needs this baptism to identify with His people. Jesus is a representative person. Everything He does from His incarnation onward is not for His sake, but for the sake of His people. Jesus doesn't need to become one of us to know the pleasures and the joy and the glory and the beauty of the life of the Holy Trinity. He's known that forever. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need to take on our flesh. He doesn't need to enter into our sufferings. He certainly doesn't need to take on our sins and enter into the grave for His sake. This is something that He does for our sake. And so Jesus must identify with these people. He must identify with us. He must be made like His brethren. As it says in Hebrews 2, In all things, Jesus had to be made like His brethren that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So He had to be made like us in all things except for sin in order to be our high priest, to represent us before God, and He also had to be made like us in, in all things to make propitiation for our sins. So Jesus' incarnation begins His acts of identification. His incarnation was an act of identification with us, becoming one of us. And his, his baptism is a further act of identification, not just with humanity or humanness in a general way, but this time very visibly an identification with sinners. Jesus is binding Himself and binding up His identity with the identities of all those who are confessing their sins and confessing the sins of God's people, who feel the weight and really the helplessness of all the sins that have come before them, all the sins of their fathers that have come before them, and all the sins that are manifesting themselves in their own persons. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament background that is being evoked here. Now, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Paul tells us that the Israelites who came out in the Exodus, and remember, that's part of the, the pictures and the typology that John's creating by going out to the Jordan River. This is a new exodus, and therefore, it's a new exodus out of Egypt. Where is Egypt? Well, Israel has become Egypt. That's the problem. Israel's got to go back out into the wilderness, as it were, confess our sins, her sins in a new exodus, and have a new entrance into the land. Well, Paul tells us that when the Israelites came out in the exodus, that they were baptized into Moses. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea in the cloud and in the sea. That's interesting because when you compare the Exodus account with some of the Psalms that refer back to that and give another account, you can see that the people are in the water in a couple of different ways in this baptism. One sense, they're down in the sea. They're in the midst of the sea. And these are the waters of death. These are the waters that are going to kill Pharaoh and his army. But we're told that those waters didn't touch the people. They're in the midst of them, but those waters are not touching the people. That that was not actually the baptismal water that touched them. And then we might wonder, well, where did that water come from? And that's where this phrase that they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. From the Psalms, we know that as they were going through the sea on dry ground, it was sprinkling rain. And so the water that is coming upon them and touching them, the water of life that is touching them, not the water of death, is coming down from heaven. And so they are baptized into Moses. But then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that it was really Christ who was with the people, that Moses was just a human representative of Christ. Paul says that it was Christ who was with the people, who went before them in the cloud and in the fire. It was Christ who provided for them in the desert. It was Christ who protected them. He says, they all ate the same spiritual food, in other words, manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, that is, water from the rock, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So by being baptized into Moses, they're being baptized into the human repre- representative of the pre-incarnate Son of God. In other words, we might fairly say Jesus was there. They were being baptized into Jesus by being baptized into the human who represented Him and that is Moses. So notice the principle of identification that was at work there and notice that you you have Christ identifying with his people you have his people identifying with him because they're being baptized into him but notice that it is Christ who takes the initiative Christ did not sit in the glory cloud in the promised land and then call the people to come out and join him no he goes into Egypt he goes into captivity he goes into death He goes into their predicament, being sinners and captive to death, and he breaks the power of Pharaoh, and he brings the people out, and he leads them through the sea and through the desert and into the promised land. Remember that when Moses is on the mountain with uh, God speaking from the glory cloud, which is identified in... um, Stephen's great defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts as being the angel of the Lord. Well, the angel of the Lord is the Son of God. It is God the Son. And so when the people sin with the golden calf, um, there's kind of a, a lesson that is going on between God and Moses, teaching about God's name and His grace. And so God, God the Son pre-incarnate says to Moses, I will destroy this people and raise up a new people through you. And Moses says, but what about your name? What about your name? Because your name is not, I'm the God of anger who destroys everybody because they deserve it. Your name is, you are the loving God, merciful, forgiving, not giving people what they deserve, but delivering them for sin. If you do that... You're going to deny who you really are, and all the peoples around are not going to receive a true testimony. And so the pre-incarnate Son of God says to Moses, Okay, you lead these people, I will be with you. And Moses says, Unless you go before us, I will not go. So Moses understands very well that he is not the real Savior. He's not the real leader. The Passover lamb, remember, is a picture of Christ, not of the people. So when it says, out of Egypt I called my son, who is the son who is being called out? It is God the son. It is the pre-incarnate son of God. It is the who dwells in the glory cloud. This is the son that is being called out of Egypt. Why is he being called out of Egypt? Because he's gone to Egypt to get his people and he brings them out. So we see that the people can only be identified with Christ in baptism because Christ has first identified with them. And there's another figurative baptism at the end of the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And that is when the people pass through the Jordan River on dry ground, thus linking it with their passage through the Red Sea on dry ground. So passing through the Jordan is like another... Baptism. The baptism of the Red Sea was about getting the people out of Egypt. The baptism of the Jordan River was about getting Egypt out of the people. And that is exactly what John's baptism in the Jordan was about as well. For as we have already seen, Israel had become Egypt. Now the other thing that seems to be going on here besides just this principle of identification is that Jesus' baptism was also an entrance into the priesthood. When uh, a son of Aaron would be brought into the priesthood and specifically when the high priest would become the high priest, like when Aaron became the high priest, he has to undergo a baptism and an anointing with oil. The baptism is through a pouring or a laving of water uh, upon uh, the the one to become high priest, followed by an anointing of oil. Again, Jesus is about thirty; that is the age you would enter the priesthood. John is the son of a priest of the Aaronic line. He is a legitimate priest of God, and so he is an appropriate one to administer the baptism of priesthood to Jesus. The only problem is that Jesus is not of the sons of Aaron. He's not even of the sons of Levi. He is of the tribe of Judah, which is the kingly line, but it is not the priestly line. But here, the Old Testament prophecies help us. The Old Testament says that the Messiah will be a high priest. But he says that it says that he will not be high priest according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek, that' Psalm 110, which John read to us this morning. So the Messiah will be high priest, but not in the line of Aaron, in the line of this strange character called Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this character who shows up out of the blue without any warning, without any background, without any genealogy, no father, no mother, no nothing. He shows up for one episode and then he's gone without a trace for the whole rest of the Bible. Except that David in Psalm 110 prophesies, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet and also says I have sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. It says in Genesis 14 that he was priest of God most high. It also says that he was king of Salem. Salem means peace. He was king of Peace. So, he is a priest and he is a king. That's not the way God did it in Israel between uh, the Aaronic sons and, and the Judaic sons, the sons of Judah. But they are combined in Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not of the tribe of Israel. He was not related to Abraham. And yet, Abraham acknowledges that Melchizedek, this Gentile, this Gentile priest and king is greater than he is. It's after uh, God has enabled Abraham to miraculously uh, defeat and deliver the people who have been taken captive, including his nephew Lot, by a cattle and the other local kings. And it says that Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek and that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now all of this is discussed in Hebrews chapter seven. And Hebrews chapter 7 gives us the uh, divine interpretation of what was happening back in Genesis. It says that the, the greater blesses the lesser, and also the lesser plays tithe to the greater. So by Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, and by Melchizedek blessing Abraham, both of them are acknowledging that between the two of them, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now, Put yourself in the first century as a Jew that is on the ground. To say that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is saying a mouthful. So it is as high priest that Jesus must be baptized. And here again we see a further aspect of this principle of identification. For under the Old Testament law, the high priest represented the people of God and he specifically represented them as a symbolic sin-bearer. The way that it worked, basically, is that all the sins of the people accumulate onto the high priest. And then on the Day of Atonement, the high priest places his hands on the head of the scapegoat, and the sins are brought onto the head of the scapegoat. There's actually going to be two goats on the Day of Atonement. One of them is going to be killed and the blood sprinkled. The other one is going to be driven into the wilderness. So it takes two sacrificial animals in order to make up the picture of the one sacrificial Christ. The blood is shed and the sin is taken away outside the camp. That's a point that's made in the New Testament that Jesus suffered outside the camp. He is driven out. So the high priest puts all the sins onto this goat, and the goat is driven away so that all the sins are taken away. Now, what God is doing, if we want to complete this picture of accumulation of sins, is that God, down through history, is accumulating the sins of the human race and piling them up on Israel, the priestly people. And from Israel, He then piles them up on the high priest who then puts them on the goat who is the picture of Christ. Now you may wonder, how does God accumulate all the sins of the world and place them upon Israel? Uh, This is something that Jesus is going to talk about when things get really intense in Matthew chapter 23, which is shortly before Jesus is going to be crucified. He tells the Jews, he says, fill up the measure of all your father's guilt that upon this generation may become all of the unrighteous blood, not in the history of Israel, but in the history of the world, going all the way back to Cain, who killed his brother Abel. Now, how, how does this work? It works because God, in His infinite plan, through the people of Israel, Israel was able to commit the ultimate sins in a way that no other people had an opportunity to do. This generation of Israel, remember they're representatives of us, so we can't go, boy, those were bad people. There's been times in the Christian church where Jews have been persecuted as the so-called crucifiers of the Lord, as though we would have done something different. Now, that's haughtiness, that's conceit, that's self-righteousness. That's not the point. The point is, Israel did what all of us would have done, what every people would have done in the history of the world. But they were the only generation who had the opportunity to kill God, as it were. Ultimately, we can't kill God. The closest thing we can come to is to kill the God-man. Okay, And that's exactly what Israel did. And that's what it means by filling up the guilt of all the unrighteous blood. That's the ultimate rejection. God appears in the flesh. We will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar whom they hate. Caesar who they want gone. But he's infinitely better than having the Son of God to rule over us. So in this way, God is bringing all the sin of the world upon Israel, and He's taking all that sin and He's placing it on His Son. The true high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, so that his son can deal with it. Now, that's what's being pictured on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, except the high priest there, according to the order of Aaron, couldn't really deal with it. He could only deal with it symbolically. As it says in Hebrews, he's presenting sacrifices of animals that can never really take away sin. It can show faith, it can show trust in the Messiah to come, which will take away sin. But no, no blood of an animal will ever take away the smallest sin. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Now, there's a very interesting aspect of this in the Old Testament. You remember this thing called the year of Jubilee. They had uh, weekly Sabbaths, and then they would have um, count up seven Sabbaths of years. In other words, you would go seven times seven, that's 49 years, The very next year, the 50th year, 50, Pentecost, the 50th year is the year of Jubilee, okay? So, and every seventh year, debts are going to be forgiven and that kind of thing, but the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. All indentured servants are set free. All debts are forgiven. Year of Jubilee, a lot to be happy and rejoicing about. The year of Jubilee, though, came two ways. One way was every 50th year. The other way was the death of the high priest. The death of the high priest brought a year of jubilee no matter when it came. And so it's like, what a strange thing for God to do. I mean, you know, here the high priest died. What a sad event. And it's a year of jubilee. Well, it's a picture. It's a picture, of course, of the death of Christ. Now, when Jesus is baptized, we have a voice coming from heaven, we're told. The voice comes from heaven. This is God the Father obviously saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is more than a statement. It is a statement, but it's more than a statement. It's also an allusion to Psalm 2 and to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 we've already talked about. These are two Psalms which prophesy of the Son of God being both high priest after the order of Melchizedek and also being the king whom God exalts to His right hand. Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 2, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree... The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So remember Melchizedek, not just priest of God Most High, but also king of Salem, king of peace. Now, the New Testament is going to make clear that these prophecies concerning the Son of God as King, exalted to God's right hand, and and of high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, exalted to God's right hand, that those ultimately are completed in their fulfillment upon the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But their beginning of their fulfillment starts right now with Jesus' baptism when He enters into the priestly representativeness and the kingly representation of His people. Now, we see the whole whole Trinity involved in this event. Jesus is coming out of the water. The Father is speaking from heaven. And the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove. We see all three persons of the Trinity acting in concert to one purpose and yet acting distinctly. This demonstration of the Trinity is not one of one God with three different roles, like one actor who goes behind stage and puts on a different costume and comes out and acts a different role, but with three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son does not send himself into the world It is the Father who sends the Son into the world. It is the Father who so loves the world that He sends His Son. It is not the Father or the Spirit who is incarnate and who dies as the sin-bearer of the world. It is the Son alone who does this. It is not the Father who descends to anoint Jesus and later to anoint His people to strengthen them and enable them for God's will. It is the Spirit alone who does that. So you really have a whole Trinitarian theology that is pictured here. You have Jesus, the Son, honoring the Father. And because He has honored the Father, you have the Father turning around and honoring His Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You have the Spirit honoring the Son by descending upon Him. And later we're told that the Spirit does not testify of Himself, doesn't draw attention to Himself, He points all attention to the Son, to the glory of the Father. We also see the Father uh, exalting and glorifying the Son in John chapter 5, where it says that the Father will not judge anyone, but has appointed all judgment to His Son. All power and authority has been given to the Son. And so we see the Son honoring the Father, we see the Father honoring the Son, we see the Spirit honoring the Son to the glory of the Father, and finally, we see the Father and the Son honoring the Spirit, the one who is always honoring. We see the Father and the Son honoring the Spirit because Jesus will say later in His ministry that blasphemy against the Father and the Son will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. In this age or the next. The Holy Spirit is the final witness and so you see the Father and the Son exalting the Spirit there. The other thing that is amazing and beautiful and glorious here is that the Father as He gives the Son to the world, He so loved the world that He gave His Son, is really giving Himself. Jesus would say, if you have seen me you have seen the Father. Jesus' ministry is all about bringing people to the Father. So, by giving His Son and later giving the Spirit, the Father is really giving Himself to the world. Jesus, in giving Himself to the world and in ministering and speaking, is really giving the Father to the world. It's all He says, I can only do what I see my Father doing. That's what I do, and that's what I speak. He points to the Father, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And Jesus will also give the Spirit to the world. We know, we're told that He says in John chapter 15 and 16, He says the Father is going to send the Spirit, but then He also says that I will send the Spirit. So Jesus gives Himself, and in doing so, He gives the Father and He gives the Spirit. And the Spirit, when He comes by giving Himself, He gives the Son and the Father. The Spirit points to the Son. He testifies of the Son. He exalts the Son. And in doing so, He gives the Father. And so you see this self-giving and by giving, giving the other. And glorifying and honoring the other. In and out, over and around, it goes constantly. This is the life of the Trinity. This is the pattern for all of life. It's the pattern that we fell away from when our first parents fell. It's the pattern that God the Father is calling us back to and which Jesus and the Spirit are bringing us back to. When the, the Bible speaks of life and when the Bible speaks of love, this is what it's talking about. And that's why, again and again, the Scriptures say that the evidence that we get this and that this really has come upon us with power is that this is the way we treat one another. That same pattern of preferring one, uh, others before ourselves, of being loyal, loving, of exalting others, of identifying with them, that whole spirit of, infant, uh, of uh, empathy and identification is the proof that the pattern of true life has again come upon us by the power of Christ and the Spirit. So through all of this, beginning with the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is bringing about a new exodus, a new objective salvation for the whole world that will leave nothing that is untouched. The dove, we're told the Spirit descends upon Him as a dove. And in the Bible, whenever you hear in the same passage, water word and spirit always think baptism and whenever you think baptism always think new creation at the very beginning of the bible we're talking about, we hear about god speaking let there be light and he creates the heavens and the earth and then we're told that the spirit of god was hovering over the water you have word you have water you have spirit you think baptism and you think new creation And that is exactly what was going on. And we have this pictured again after Noah's flood in Genesis chapter 8. And there we have the type of the dove being introduced. You have had word and you have water, you have spirit, and Noah's flood is like a baptism to take away wickedness and to bring in righteousness and you have the dove hovering over the water as the harbinger the the forerunner, the indicator the sign that the new world is there. And I'm not stretching when I refer to Noah's flood as a baptism because Peter tells us expressly in 1 Peter 3 verses 20 and 21 that Noah's flood was a type of Trinitarian Christian baptism. Now that that should make us stop because he's saying that what he's not saying this is an analogy that i came up with here's a nice illustration here's a nice analogy for you to help me understand this that's not what a type is a type is only a type because god intended it as a type before it came about to start with that's the only way you have a type in other words god is building the analogy in the other thing we need to remember about types is that the answering type, the fulfilling type, is always greater than the original type. That means your Christian baptism is greater than Noah's flood. When you think about it. That's like, that one's hard to get our heads around. Noah's flood covered the entire earth. Can you imagine what it would have been like? Imagine. Peter is saying that was just a type of Christian baptism. You see, the Trinitarian baptism that Jesus is going to bring about, God, through that baptism, is flooding the world again, one person at a time. And it is greater than Noah's flood because Noah's flood, with all the water that it had, the whole world at once, did not have the power to deliver from sin and death. Whereas the baptism Jesus brings in the triune name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together, delivers and actually brings in righteousness. Jesus is flooding the world again, one person at a time. And this one will deliver the world from righteousness. This is what's going on in Jesus' baptism. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.